The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. It is another Saturday with Shaggin' Flies. I've got a special one coming at you this week, and actually a special one because, unfortunately, uh, Ben Palmer could not be with us this time. He woke up on Tuesday morning and was just transformed into a giant dill pickle spear, so um, he's okay, to be clear. But uh, thanks to that, I went solo this week with Howard Megdal, who is a veteran of many different sports media scenes, but in recent years has been pioneering coverage of women's sports uh, with his newsrooms such as The Nine and The Next, which cover women's sports in the WNBA extensively. He currently resides at Baseball Prospectus as well. Uh, He'll be publishing an updated edition of his book this upcoming spring, The Baseball Talmud. Uh, We talked about all of those things, uh, and also about how we're probably the only two alumni of Bard College, the weird and wonderful school that we both attended, to uh, ever meet on a baseball podcast, because, uh, to say the least, Bard is not known for its athletic prowess. Uh, So you'll have to indulge some of that conversation in between the WNBA and MLB talk, but we do get to a lot of baseball, so... Sit back, relax, and strap it down for episode 26 of Shag and Flies with Howard Megdal. Sarah Lawrence tonight in women's basketball and very exciting times in the Bard Athletics Department. Yes, yes, it certainly is. We, I, I have plenty to talk about with Bard um, in a little bit, but I, before we get into that, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. this is what we usually, how we usually start things off, just uh, where are you at right now and uh, where are you from? I am currently in Rivervale, New Jersey, where mm-hmm. I live. I grew up in Jersey too in uh, Cherry Hill. Uh, which is closer to Philadelphia. Now I'm a little closer to New York. And uh, I I work from home uh, for the work I do when I'm not out covering something. And I'm here with uh, my uh, my family, uh, my two daughters and my wife. Mm-hmm. So... Awesome. Yeah. One of one of the reasons we are talking now is that you you are a baseball person. You you write for baseball prospectus um, among mm-hmm. other many other places, which we will talk about. But so I'm curious, how did you get into writing? Uh, I know I've been told that you did some you did a lot of uh, a lot of kind of self-starting stuff at Bard from 
uh, sports writing to uh, onion type writing. So just tell me a little about your career and how you uh, how you got to where you are. It's it's an interesting question. It's it's hard to answer. Um, you know, in one straightforward way, it's always been something <laughs> that I'm passionate about. Uh, you know, journalism in middle school and high school newspapers. Uh, when we got to Bard, the Bard newspaper at the time was functioning in what I would say is sort of a traditionally Bard kind of way, which is to say it would come out um, every so often, possibly. And so wanted to change that. Uh, so created a, a, a newspaper of my own called The Outside World there, which was news, politics, sports, and you know a fair bit of satire as well. Um, but when I got out of school, I took a job in politics that I thought I wanted to work for political oh. campaigns, and I found I absolutely did not. I absolutely hated it. And so I was trying to regroup and trying to figure it out, and there was a newspaper not far from where we went to school called the Hudson Register Star, and an opening for a news and a sports reporter, a hybrid, and uh, I took it, and uh, I just loved it. And I just, it was sort of a further reminder that whatever else I wanted to do, journalism was going to be pretty central to it. And I've done a lot since I know we'll get into, but, um, you know, that's kind of been at the, at the center of it for me. Man, that sounds, that's, that's, that's so familiar. Uh, <laughs> I, I did basically the same thing as I got out of Bard and I took, uh, I, I wasn't sure, you know, what I wanted to do. I'm still to, uh, some extent not this wasn't this wasn't all that long ago and i took a job with a political consultant um yeah. i'm based here in chicago and okay. uh it was supposed to be this real you know golden stepping stone type job very you know progressive politics and all that stuff and uh i got i got into it and i immediately realized like oh god this is horrible this is not <laughs> i don't have you have to be you have to have a certain type of personality to work in politics uh yeah. especially kind of high stakes politics and not, I guess all politics are high stakes, but that's a that's a different a different conversation. I, but we just found that out with all the school board elections. And very, exactly, or I should yeah. say, like uh, the the glamorous politics, you know, citywide and big big elections and what what all the ambitious young kids uh, dream of. But no, it's horrible. You know, you have to have a certain kind of cutthroat personality sometimes. And I very quick, quickly figured out that that wasn't me. That was I was not really cut out for that, and I didn't want to do that. So as as okay. is the case for many early 20-somethings uh, who have no idea what they want to do. I went back to grad school. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized in the summer between I when I quit that job and went back to grad school, I was in recovery from uh, thyroid cancer and had had a few procedures for that. And I just kind of started writing and sending stuff places as, you know, I had a lot of time on my hands. And it's like, why not? And very quickly realize like, Oh, this is something I like. This is something I want to do. I still don't know what I, I still to this day don't know exactly what I want to do, but I'm fairly certain that writing is going to be, be central to it. So yeah, it's a, that's a very relatable, relatable path. So. It, it, it does it, figuring out how to make writing central to the way we make a living in 2021 is its own set of complicated questions. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, so Figuring out what you want to do is overrated anyway. I'm at 41. <laughs> I would say I have a fairly decent idea of much of what I want to do, but I wouldn't say I necessarily figured out the precise shape of how it's all going to go from now until whenever I decide to stop. 
And that's, I mean, your body of work is pretty impressive, and I must say, so uh, that's <laughs> that that says something. So, um, tell me, tell me a little bit before we get into Bard to stick with the writing mm-hmm. uh, about the next, uh, the nine, and how you got into women's sports and founding all of these excellent publications, which I um, recommend everybody check out. And uh, yeah, tell me how you got into that scene and how that developed. Well, I appreciate that. You, you know, from the time. I was at the Register Star on. From the very um, beginning of my sports writing, uh, I was covering. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, my That's my it. cat my cat has caught a mouse and has just brought it into my into my oh, room. Oh, okay. Um, so, still so, okay. You can. <laughs> sorry. Let me. Let sure, me take, is it? Okay. I think it's dead, so I can just run and toss it out real quick. <laughs> sure, do by all means. Silver, you are. Hey, hey, drop it, drop it, drop, it's, is it dead? Is it dead? Yes, yes, it's pretty dead, okay. He's efficient. It's, she's, oh my God. Okay, I'll be right back. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PO Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show <laughs> Isn't that the the Zoom work from home life, huh? It is. I, I mean, look, honestly, there's not a podcast I've done where we haven't had a dead mouse in the middle of it. So I do. <laughs> totally I normal. Totally run of the mill. Uh, so I'm sorry. I just asked you about uh, the next and the nine and getting into sure. women's sorts and all that. So uh, continue. <laughs> for sure. And And so, you know, for me, from the very beginning, it was covering men's and women's. It was covering boys and girls when you were in high, high school. And being immediately, there's this gap in coverage. And you feel it and you understand it. And at a certain point in my career, I got to a point where it wasn't simply a question of, this is something I'm going to try and fix on the margins. But I think I can really dedicate myself to changing the nature of the way this coverage happens. And so I did that uh, for uh, a while through um, trying to freelance it in many different places as possible and trying to get those publications to change by giving them more of an opportunity to cover. Um, Ultimately, I got to the point where that felt in many ways like I was kind of building in sand. And, um, you know, you're trying to figure out, all right, how do you at the infrastructure level try and change this? And so the nine 
which uh, we began in 2018 and have grown significantly, uh, is across six women's sports every single day. And, you know, why do we do that? Number one, because uh, when it comes to making sure that you're empowering voices to do this, there need to be regular places where they have the opportunity to grow and grow their own audiences and be able to talk about it. Uh, we also do it because we have in each of the six, and it's women's soccer, tennis, basketball, golf, hockey, uh, and gymnastics, we have a lynch section. Why does that matter? That matters because you need to be able to have women sports fans find the work. You know, if you are a person uh, endeavoring to cover women's sports at a particular publication, you go to your editor, your editor is going to say, well, the last one didn't do so well, so maybe we don't want to do this one. And so making sure that the audience for that is as wide as possible is important, but also why didn't it do so well? Well, if your editor allows you to cover women's sports once every two months and your audience isn't expecting it, then you haven't built the habit. And then it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. So making sure mm -hmm. that our audience is doing that. If you care about women's tennis in one, you care about women's tennis in another publication, the audience comes together. And then the third part of it is ending that siloing effect. There are women's basketball fans who care about women's soccer. There are women's tennis fans who care about women's golf, but they don't necessarily know where to get that information. And our open rates are consistently above 40%, which is unheard of in the uh, entire industry. And it's because people care about one, they care about the other. And so that's the nine. And then the next is very simply a 24-7 women's basketball um, newsroom. And we have 30 journalists who are writing about the sport year round. So we're putting a lie to that myth that women's basketball is not year round. Women's basketball, as anyone who pays the sledge bit attention will tell you, is the most year round there is. The moment that the WNBA finals ended, I had a day and then I was off to Big East Media Day to go talk uh, to UConn and Villanova and Seton Hall women's basketball players. There is no off-season in women's basketball, even more so than anywhere else, before you even get into EuroLeague, before you even get into Athletes Unlimited, which is starting this year. And so showing that this is a year-round endeavor, it matters. It, we're showing the audience is consistent. I've been incredibly gratified by the amount of subscriptions we've had just in the year we've been independent at the next it is simply building that infrastructure for an audience that's underserved. Yeah, that's really fantastic work. Cause I can, I can tell you how, if, if I had had, if I had seen something like that growing up when I was, you know, in middle school and really in high school and really starting to dive into sports, then I absolutely would have been, I think I would have been a pretty, a pretty diehard fan by now. I think yeah. I got, I got there. I got there. I will say, Hey, if you ever need any stringers for the Chicago sky, hit me up. Uh, it's yeah. I, it, I recently, I bought season tickets for the sky before this year, um, yeah. which talk about a great investment like <laughs> <laughs> uh, this year. And it was honestly one of the most fun experiences I had had watching sports and being, a, you know, following a team uh, and being, feeling like a part of a season in a million years. Um, it did, it helps that they won the finals, of course, mm -hmm. but just the feeling of, I started really following the league uh, in during the bubble last year, which is when I also came, uh, came across the nine. And so <clears throat> 
just the feeling though of being like kind of going through that process again of learning about the league, learning about the players, discovering the narratives and finding out the history uh, was, was really, really, really fun because it's not something, I mean, I've been, I've been a White Sox fan for a million years. I've been a, um, a Bears fan. I didn't have a choice. I wish I wasn't, but you know, uh, the Bulls are, gosh, I don't even have to talk about it. You know, the bulls, the bulls are in my blood too, fortunately. Uh, so I, man, I really, really would love to think that if, if you can continue to grow this and you get more and more sources like that, and that 20, we, you make it a consistent part of what people are seeing. I, I think a lot of other people are going to discover that too. I, would I mean, what is aggravating about it is that it is as simple as showing up and making it possible for people to show up the every day. And I emphasize this a lot on social media, but it it's so central to it. There's nothing magical about the fact and the ways that men's sports are able to be fully engaged. They're able to be fully engaged because if you care about it, you're reading about it every day. You're able to consume it every day during the season. You're able to consume as I'm sure you know, as, you know, from a baseball fan, an NBA fan, um, the off season is, if anything, even more significant mm-hmm. in terms of how people are connected to it as well. And it's all right there. And if you don't give people the ability to do that, and by and large, sports media has not done that for women's sports, the fact that women's sports has grown as much as it has is almost a remarkable <laughs> thing. You know, you hear these these percentages. You know, like four percent of all coverage is women's sports, and and even that number, honestly, may be overstating it. Depends on how you define it. It depends on how you measure it. Depends on you know old versus new media and all these different mm-hmm. ways. Well, the attendance differences are not four percent. You know, the the WNBA average attendance at its low ebb was about forty five percent of the average attendance of NBA. Well, so anybody worth a damn uh, statistically is looking at and saying, you've got something that's performing at 10 times the rate of the media coverage it's receiving. So first of all, the media coverage is woefully out of balance Mm -hmm. with the audience you're talking about. And second of all, what an opportunity if you were to equalize coverage, there's every reason Mm -hmm. to think the WNBA would do better than the NBA. And Mm -hmm. and so I I view it in, in a lot of ways as, Women's sports is very much a developing economy, and men's sports is a developing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I, I can only imagine the frustration because it was almost outrageous to me. I remember watching a couple weeks ago. I watched. I'm watching Sports Center the night that the Sky clinched the finals, uh, and this year's this year's Sky were an incredibly fun team. Narratives up the wazoo. You know, there's there's really a lot to talk about, and there was a lot to have fun with, and then watching Scott Van Pelt on SportsCenter kind of stumble through, like clearly reading off a prompter. It's like, he could tell me, he can have a conversation. He'll bring freaking OBJ's trainer's brother Mm -hmm. onto the show and have an in-depth conversation about what they're doing this week. And you can't even like get Kalia Copper's name right. (laughs) Cut me me a break. (laughs) the, The number of times that you see limitations on this because it isn't necessary to be versed in women's sports in order to get a general sports job. And I'm not talking about anyone in particular in this case. I'm saying throughout the industry, you can't get hired 
in these general sports jobs if you can't speak about the NBA and the NFL and, and, and Major League Baseball, right? But it isn't a prerequisite over and over again to be able to do it about the WNBA or the National Women's Soccer League or PHF. And mm-hmm. the net result are decisions editorially that reflect that. And when somebody uncomfortably stretches moments like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder, especially as, um, as politics and sports become more and more, uh, intertwined or not intertwined so much as sort of, uh, impossible to deny that intertwining. I, I wonder if that's going to be a factor in people being able to, uh, identify more with the WNBA and, uh, and, and their players and kind of the way, the way they operate a little more. Like there's a lot of people who are like, <laughs> it's hard to be a football fan. You know, Major League Baseball makes it really hard to be a baseball fan sometimes, a lot of the time. Uh, I I mean, you you can go beyond politics, though, even mm -hmm. to just as there's a rise in popularity, it gets harder and harder to ignore. Listen, I I am a longtime soccer fan. Mm -hmm. And I remember when you absolutely did not have any chance of seeing soccer in most mainstream publications. Mm -hmm. It was perfectly acceptable to bash soccer and that was the default position of much of uh, the sports media industry and that has changed over time uh it became too impo- too popular to ignore and mm-hmm. ultimately i believe that something can and is happening already with women's sports but will continue and you know who are you writing for ultimately mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, i mean people who are sports fans yeah and hopefully, I, I hope it be, continues to become more, more and more accessible too. Uh, that was a huge. I mean, I know moving from until a couple of years ago, the sky played all the way out in the northwest suburbs, like by O'Hare Airport, and it was. I'm like, it's far away. It's very far away from most people. And they moved a few years ago to a new arena um, that was built, unfortunately, with Chicago's education budget. But like, you know, again, whole other conversation. <laughs> Oh, other conversation. This is sorry, Ben. This is what happens when you let me run the show. Uh, <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it, it made a huge difference. It takes ten minutes for me to get to a sky game. Uh, I that that sort of casual accessibility. And I went to an I went to a Chicago Red Stars game this past summer. Uh, my first NWSL game. My first pro soccer mm-hmm. game. I'm not a huge soccer guy. Oh, sure. And I'm like, this is so. This is fun. I would if this wasn't all the way out in the southwest suburbs where I have to either drive forty five minutes and pay for parking. I would do this all the time. Sure. I mean, it's an absurd idea uh, that everyone always talks about. You you know, there are very specific uh, women's reasons why women's sports struggle Mm -hmm. in a lot of these tropes that don't bear basic scrutiny. Mm -hmm. If you make it accessible, more people are going to show up. If you make it easier to get there, more people are going to show up. If you make the experience better, more people are going to keep coming back. It, you know, we, we've got a team out here uh, in Jersey that was called Sky Blue FC that used mm-hmm. to play at Rutgers. And it was like the middle of nowhere in every conceivable way. Okay, you're, if you think about the state of New Jersey, and those are those are the people listening who, who know Jersey understand it, New Brunswick's middle of the state. You're just far enough from New York and just far enough from Philadelphia that both markets are going to probably not pay attention to you. You, You're playing a season that's primarily in the summer. So all of your 
uh, local college students have gone away for the most part. And it's a 5,000-seat soccer stadium with only benches and a single place to buy food and drink. When they moved from that arena, from that stadium, to playing at Red Bull Arena, which is the premier soccer place in the area, which is significantly closer to New York and thus also available, Mm -hmm. easily accessible by the PATH train, attendance was up over 30% this year. In year one, coming off a pandemic, if you look around, even very popular sports that did well, attendance was typically down. So you're doing that into the wind of people Mm -hmm. coming back from COVID. It's just in the same way that, and it always aggravates me so much, the idea, you know, well, why aren't women supporting women's sports more? Well, same reason men haven't been, right? Because men's sports, people learn about it through media channels, through investment, through publicity, through promotion. Women's sports, if you put the same energy and the same money behind it, people Mm -hmm. are going to learn the same way. And women don't consume things differently. Men aren't getting this through traditional methods, and women have like a traveling pants of media information, right? It's the same damn thing, and it's at the same disadvantages. And if you level the playing field across media and investment, and then there's a gap, then I'm willing to talk to you about uh, a limitation of women's sports, right? Mm -hmm. But until we see anything approaching equality, and by the way, every time we do, and forgive me for this soapbox, but every time we see something approaching equality, you don't just see audience equalized, you see it greater than. The the most watched soccer match in um, American history is the 2015 Women's World Cup final. And I just, mm-hmm. okay, we got to go off on a brief tangent here. Oh, Why this entire show happen? is a tangent. Stay on the soapbox, man. Fair enough. <laughs> Why did that happen? Well, the World Cup, men's and women, has always been ESPN, ESPN broadcast. Fox gets the rights to both. They got a show, and, and there was a popular question at that time. Geez, can Fox do a World Cup? Whatever. It's a stupid thing, but there were a lot of people talking about it. So Fox is going to go all out. They're going to show they can do it. Well, they bought it right after 2014. So what's your first chance to do it? The 2015 Women's World Cup. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the 2011 Women's World Cup didn't do all that well. The the send-off game for the women's national team at Red Bull Arena drew, I think, 5,800 fans. I mean, it was not, it was not great. Mm-hmm. But what does Fox Sports do? Well, they say, we're going to treat this like a big-time event, which, of course, it is. But these only are signified as big-time events by the proper level of investment and attention. So they didn't just put on the matches. They had previews. They had a ton of secondary programming around it. They sent people to all their other uh, branding opportunities. You had Alex Morgan on The Simpsons. You had Abby Wambach on American Idol. So by the time we got to the matches starting, people were paying attention. And Mm -hmm. so my favorite number isn't just the 26.2 million who watched the final. There was a Tuesday morning group game between Brazil and China that drew 1.2 million fans watching. Tuesday morning group game, Brazil and China. This is what happens 
when you put it on all the time. This is a matter of course for a full court press men's event. We see it with NBA Summer League, which was nothing five years ago. And now, if you want to hear somebody from the WNBA curse, just send them an email that uh, ESPN sends out that says, every single NBA Summer League game will be on the ESPN family of networks. And you compare that to the way ESPN is kind enough occasionally to broadcast some WNBA games, even though they're Mm -hmm. their partners. And again, so it just comes back to, if you promote it the same way, we got these Venn diagrams that dummies use, right? Hey, well, there's this group of people who watch men's or women's sports, and then we got this group over here, and they're only going to watch men's sports. Well, guess what? There's another group over here that's only going to watch women's sports. You don't know how big it is. It Mm -hmm. might be even bigger than the men's side. There's evidence to indicate that it is. Every time we equalize coverage, maybe we ought to pay attention to that group too. And maybe we don't invest in such a way that makes we, makes everybody think there's only men's or men's and women's. Yeah, it, it really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, where you say, oh, like, it, you know, because the, the, the product is great. There is zero doubt about that. The product is great. I You have to imagine that the correlation between, you know, there's going to be a pretty strong correlation between exposure and coverage and popularity uh, because the product is is there. Uh, I Well, we can I mean, we could go on forever about just the the criminality and injustice of the underfunding and um under coverage of these leagues but to go a little more positive i'm just curious what are some of your favorite things uh about covering women's sports in the w and all these things i mean the idea i've talked specifically to me the idea that last year at this time i wasn't vaccinated Mm -hmm. i wasn't feeling comfortable going inside a building with a lot of people and I didn't cover in person a single women's college basketball game last year. And it killed me. I wasn't at the final four. I couldn't imagine it for the first time in many years. So just the fact that um, I saw a schedule that had 150 plus basketball games on the agenda today mm-hmm. is so exciting to me. The fact that we're in the midst of, you know, I'm, I'm going to get live looks of players. For a year and a half, I've been relying on what people are telling me, you know, coaches and other people who are able to see. Um, so, you know, just the sheer massiveness of it is amazing to me. I'm going to get my baseball prospectus column done this afternoon. I'm going to go pick up my younger daughter who is basketball obsessed. And at 5 p.m., we're going to sit in front of the television and we're going to watch South Carolina versus NC State. And when I do that, to go to your question about covering it, I've covered Don Staley for years. Being able to appreciate and understand this legend is a person who we're telling her stories in real time means everything. Aaliyah Boston, you know, a future doctor, if she weren't so damn good at basketball, you know, and so unfortunately <laughs> for the medical community, she's going to go be a big star in the WNBA. We get to watch her play. <laughs> against Alyssa Cunane uh, from NC State, Diamond Johnson, pride of Philly, uh, transferred from Rutgers, and she's playing in this game, Zia Cook. I mean, you just go up and down both rosters. But every day there's going to be stuff like this. And, you know, being uh, having the chance to tell those stories means the world. 
And, uh, you know, I just, I don't know. I was just talking to somebody recently. I can't remember who it was, but um, I have said this before. We get thanked. Um, we get thanked by um, women's basketball figures again and again. Thank you for doing this. We'll know we've reached a certain degree of growth within the game when we don't get thanked. I've I've covered mm-hmm. many NBA games. I've never had a blind <laughs> Hey, listen, Howard, I just want to thank you for shining a light on men's basketball in this country. Never happened. We're going to have to get to that point. Oh, God, I hope. I wonder, you know, there's a lot of lot of issues this is probably the last thing i'll say so we can expedite the rest of this a little bit but hey there's a lot of issues with the ncaa and the whole uh name and image and likeness deal but you do wonder how much of an effect that's going to have when you have folks like i mean you remember the numbers last year on on page beckers and the instagram thing you know like i yeah i wonder how much of a difference that's going to make in terms of that exposure and getting people to know who these individuals are and sort of uh, be able to follow them and, and their careers and develop that, that attachment that, that leads to, you know, sustainable fandom. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I talked to Paige about this a couple of weeks ago yeah. and she cool. was speaking about the fact that ultimately she wants to play basketball and the rest is going to take care of itself. Now it's a little more complicated than that. She's got a rep. She's, you know, she's doing it the smart way um, and she'll do very well. And Paige is, Incidentally, a generational talent to mm-hmm. everyone listening. Go, go helps. <laughs> first chance you can. But yeah, exactly. It, it helps. It makes a huge difference. But it also, when you look at the way the economics of being a women's basketball player have changed just in the last couple of years, you know, you got NIL, which allows you to cash in ahead of time, you know, because there is no one and done. You have to be mm-hmm. age 22, the year of the draft, if you are a domestic player. And then uh, the new CBA has uh, has raised the floor of salaries in the WNBA significantly. And in a way that may not seem like much, because you still say, my God, you know, why are they making sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000? But the minimum, the rookie minimum was forty one three dollars before the new CBA. So it makes a difference. Uh, and you add those things together, and suddenly you're not, uh, looking for the big payday overseas, uh, which is, by the way, you know, only a handful of players every year who are able to get the big, big money overseas. It's go- it's going to matter. It has changed pretty dramatically what people are able to earn playing basketball, um, you know, within the women's basketball structure. And that's before you even get to Athletes Unlimited, which uh, gives an opportunity to stay stateside and continue to do it. Well, let's let's hope. I'm really excited to see see where it goes in the next over the next five, ten, five, ten, fifteen years. And I, I could talk about this all day. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Uh, so but before we get to baseball stuff, which we mm. probably should do being on the, the pitcher list which podcast network yes. and all that. Um, let's let's talk for a second about Bard College. And I realize I didn't say this at the beginning of the pod. So their listeners might be a little bit. Con- I'll, I'll talk about it in the introduction, whatever. But uh, we are we are both alumni of good old uh, Bard College, the Raptors in yes, Annandale indeed. on Hudson, New York. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to say for sure that uh, we are perhaps the only two sports media people. And I say that about myself very, very generously uh, 
to come out of Bard College. Uh, there may be others out there, but it is not a sports school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. So I'm curious what kind of a drove you to Bard being like, were you always thinking about sports? How did that dynamic work at a school like Bard, which, uh, um, which even more so than when I was there was not very athletically inclined. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's an excellent point. I've always loved sports. I've always loved literature, which is what I came to study. Uh, what oh, my ended up being and, and, and uh, creative uh, writing uh, mm-hmm. was a concentration there for me. Um, I had the amazing Ben Lafarge as my advisor. Um, I, I was very grateful and learned so much from him. Um, and Liz Frank, another wonderful professor, and so many. And Yusuf Rosenberg, who sadly we just lost. Um, oh, Yusuf, did he pass? He did. He did. Oh, I didn't know that. Ago, um, at age 100, who fought the Nazis as part of the mm-hmm. resistance. Quite the personality. Just a wonderful man. Peter Sorian, who passed, and James Chase taught me uh, political science as well. Um, so, you know, none of those things uh, were reasons not to come to Bard, right? Mm -hmm. But yes, you get there. And so, you know, I got there in the fall of 1998 Mm -hmm. and, you know, the internet was in its infancy. There were a handful of uh, websites even devoted to various college basketball teams. Mm -hmm. UNC had one and Duke had one. And so I made one devoted to Bard called Raptor Mania. And uh, I got a real kick out of that, out of, you know, for if you Ken Pomeroy was in his infancy, and you could go to the Ken Palm D3 ratings and read wow. it at the very bottom of D3. <laughs> you know, I was angry emails, you know, satirical angry emails to Ken Palm asking why he was biased against liberal arts schools. You know, <laughs> I got fairly dismissive responses, if I remember right, which is only and, and totally appropriate. Um, but you know, being uh, I, I also have been someone who never minded rooting for the underdog, and so mm-hmm. the fact that I was able to, you know, at WXBC, you know, I've, I've got colleagues who went to Syracuse, and it was this cutthroat battle to be the voice mm-hmm. of Syracuse men's basketball. It, it was not a battle. <laughs> you know, gee, you know, we you know get in line. Were, All right, oh, you're willing. You know, okay, good. You'll yeah. go. And, and, and I was the voice of Bard, uh, Bard College Basketball for four years. And, you know, we didn't win a men's home game until my senior year. And even that game, okay. like, we, didn't, we, we didn't beat – it wasn't a, like a from a Ken Palm perspective, it wasn't a big win. We beat Hampshire, you know. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but all the same, it was very exciting and a big moment. And uh, and I loved every minute of it. And, and I've been thrilled, you know, they – the men's team to be able to go to Johnson State and win a couple of games this weekend, you know, I love to see it. My 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 friend mm-hmm. Adam Turner was a coach there for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, Adam really built that team. Um, but to your point about it being a sports school or not being a sports school, Leon used to take pride in coming to the sports banquets and saying negative things about sports. And and it was, <laughs> Leon was another reason why I came to that school. I read Jefferson's Children when I was in high school, and I thought, all right, I knew I did not enjoy my high school experience. I knew if I wanted to go to college, it was going to have to be something different. And I read Jefferson's Children, and I thought, this man's college is going to be something different. And it was. And I'm thrilled I went to Bard. But it didn't have to be with the expensive sports. I think Leon has come to realize. I'm hopefully. Mm, 
I, you know, I can say, I don't know what it's like now. I graduated in 2018, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> in terms of the Leon, Leon loves Leon. This is Leon Botstein listeners. Yeah. We won't bore you with uh, yeah. the, the, the inside baseball of Bard College too much longer, <laughs> but uh, Leon Botstein is the president of Bard College. He's a, the kind of person that if he, he probably does, he does have a Wikipedia and he would be described as a polymath, I guess you could say. Very I interesting. Very true very quite quite the personality and uh he still in my time at bard did i i don't know if he took pleasure in it but we could always come to expect him to show up at some sports related event and uh make everybody very vaguely uncomfortable with his uh <laughs> very clear disdain for the entire operation uh so and you, you do bring up our friend uh adam turner who uh, i was gonna leave leave anonymous for a little while as as my source here uh but i was told i was told i need to ask you about a couple things in particular uh, Please. Oh, I'm the first good. one is and i'm really really curious what this could possibly be uh what is your best drag race story Oh, Lord. I, You know, what was always amazing about Bard was that I am um, liberal in so many different ways. Um, but at the same time, the school was liberal in a, in a different sort of way, by which I mean, you know, for instance, I was there during the fall of 2000. Mm-hmm. And I was very dedicated to uh, hoping that Al Gore would be elected. And that made me, of course you know, uh, a, a conservative by Bard standards. <laughs> yeah, that's, where, that's how it goes. <laughs> you know, where, where the, you know, as a whole, they went uh, for Ralph Nader. Um, you know, we could have a whole different discussion as to whether that worked out for America or not. Lord, we could. But neither here nor there. So the point being, you know, unfortunately, I was more of a bystander. I never did dress up. Um, for drag race, um, you know, not out of any sort of personal objection, but uh, in much the same way that, you know, I've become uh, a progressive, you know, living a very um, suburban life Mm -hmm. with a wife and two children. Um, But at the same time, you know, delighted that I was at a school where the drag race was such Mm -hmm. a big deal, where it was uh, look, it, it's the thing I love, I think, as much as anything about Bard, which is to say that um, there were so many ways in which Bard was welcoming in a way that I think was ahead of its time. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, um, the country is still catching up to what it felt like to be on campus at the turn of the century. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um I never got to do it or even watch it because it was always during baseball season. Oh, I, uh, sure. and I was always practicing or, or, or had a game. And uh, right. the second thing before we get on to baseball, so I don't keep you forever is um, Mike Mandlin. Explain this uh, to me. <laughs> Mike Mandlin. I friend a, I, I mean, I was just talking to him this morning. I mean, to this day. <laughs> um, yeah. We battled to make Michael, um, D3 player of the year in various outlets. And <laughs> Michael was uh, the backup center on the basketball team. Uh, he was a temporary of mine. But, Glamorous and, job. But on a per minute basis, mm-hmm. was as effective, as efficient as anyone in Division Three. And so we mm-hmm. were we were making a lot of sabermetric arguments that uh, places like D3hoops.com Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the like uh, did not give the proper weight, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, Michael Mandlin, uh, a wonderful fiction writer in his own right, 
uh, one of the best humans. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing him in the coming days. As a matter of fact, my girls are vaccinated now mm-hmm. at yesterday, literally. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It was a very big day for us. And yeah. So now we're going to start to have other vaccinated people into our mm-hmm. home. And Michael is going to be the first uh, of my friends. I'm really excited about that. Yes, lovely. One, I, one of Bard's best. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Oh, man, could talk about Bard, all the, the good and bad all day. But no uh, we are here to some extent to talk about baseball. You do write for Baseball Prospect. This you are a Mets person from Jersey. And Mike, do I have that right? You are, <laughs> as as are many. Um, so yeah. the central the central question around which this podcast is theoretically based um, mm-hmm. is simply why baseball? We've already talked plenty about, about women's sports and basketball and soccer, uh, but you write about baseball. You could write about, you could also write about um, football or men's basketball or men's soccer, but why baseball? And I have for, for, mm-hmm. for worth. And, and, and well, I'm sure continue to at some level. Mm-hmm. And I will also say, that I've written a fair amount and have an upcoming piece uh, coming about women's baseball as well. And let's not lose sight of the fact that women's baseball is growing tremendously. Mm. It is long overdue. More and more people come to understand that softball is a different sport than Mm -hmm. baseball. And that simply shunting every woman who likes to hit her pitch into a different sport is problematic for a host of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And someday when Justine Siegel is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, there will be a more popular understanding of that. And that's something I look forward to doing. And the reason I look forward to doing it is that as much as I love basketball, as much as I enjoy soccer, baseball is number one for me. And it has mm-hmm. been for the longest time. And and it is, I, I'll give you a different it's more of an effect than a cause, but I think it comes back to answering your question. Mm-hmm. Um, during the pandemic, we were extremely careful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having two children, having a set of parents, um, two sets of parents, my wife's as well, who are in their 70s. And we didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we were housebound. We were trying to get through that period of time. And as much as anything else was saved us emotionally, me specifically emotionally, was baseball. Um, my daughter, my older daughter is 11 and uh, was a casual baseball fan who became a passionate one. We were collecting cards together. We started doing card breaks together. It was something we do to this day. We mm-hmm. went on home, as a matter of fact. My father is locked in his house, too. And we were playing diamond mine baseball together. We were able to play games against one another. You know, uh, old old teams, teams mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Um, it was a way in which to immerse yourself. And baseball offers you the opportunity to do that. And you know, mm-hmm. from the life you've lived. Um, when baseball is on, it is 162 games a year for Major League Baseball. Uh, there are 15 games a day in Major mm-hmm. League Baseball alone. There are hundreds more in Minor League Baseball, even after the criminal pillaging of the minor leagues that we saw MLB perform last year. Uh, tonight, there will be basketball games for me to watch, but there will also be several Dominican Winter League games 
that I can mm-hmm. turn anywhere. In I can go back. I watched a lot of baseball this year, but there are thousands of games I've yet to get to that I can go back and watch and consume and see and understand in a new way players that I'm very curious about. Mm-hmm. There will be an endless array of conversations about off-season moves that teams may make. Uh, we are less than a month away from Hall of Fame votes for a host <laughs> of people who belong in the Hall, including Gil Hodges, uh, who I talked about on the very brick that I purchased in front of City Field in honor of my family, past, present, and future, that we go visit mm-hmm. when we go to Mexicans. And Dick Allen, who is, for a host of different reasons, underappreciated in his time. Criminal. Criminal. And that conversation and all of those conversations, and they overlap and they work with one another. They're all part of what baseball is and was and can be. And I, I, I just, I don't think there's anything else in my life that allows me to immerse so completely and emotionally and intellectually um, and in a way that obviously connects to my father, a Brooklyn Dodgers fan uh, to this day, um, and my daughter, uh, who I think will root for and will care about baseball after I'm gone. Um, the way that this sport does. It means everything to me. And mm-hmm. so it will always be central to the way in which I live my life. Yeah, we've we've gotten similar answers to that uh, before. It's just the, the constantness, the steady presence is so mm-hmm. important. It's what ba- makes makes baseball it's just different in, in so many ways. And to stick with the to stick with the vaccine talk, sometimes it feels like football and basketball are like a shot, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're a big dose and they get you going. And baseball is like an IV. It's just a kind of yeah. steady drip and it's always there. And it's, you know, you don't notice it a lot of the time, but if you want to, you have it. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's just so different. It's like, I don't really, I, and it's almost similar to the, uh, the conversation about women's sports with some of the winter leagues and the minor leagues and stuff. I wish they had more exposure. I miss having random baseball games on in the middle of the day. Like put those on, put those on ESPN plus or something, you know, put them on whatever channel and I will watch them and people will watch them. Because, I, my, um, I mean, a life hack I have for you is turn the scores off on your MLB.tv account. Hmm. Click a day, click a game. You're not going to remember, you know, whether the, whether the Minnesota Twins won on May 28th or not. Mm-hmm. Click on it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's. I mean, that's. <laughs> it reminds me a couple of, like one of my um, friends from grad school with whom I talk about uh, the WNBA a lot. She got into into the league. Um, she's a she's a getting her PhD in American studies, which is what I have my master's in. And as she was studying for her field exams, which is one of those things where you have to read like you know freaking a hundred books in a semester and be able to tell tell your your hard, hard ass professors about it and, and pass on to the next level. And she went through like every single WNBA game, damn near uh, every, she watched every Chicago sky game from, uh, from the season before. And that's like exact same, exact same dynamic. That's how ah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to start doing that now. Um, so I also want to give you a chance um, to talk about your forthcoming, your forthcoming book as well, which I'm, 
uh, as as a Jewish baseball fan, am super super interested to hear about the baseball Talmud. So please uh, tell the listeners about that. <laughs> I mean, it's been such a fun experience over the past six months to put that together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was my first book. Uh, it was published in 2009. I wrote it mm-hmm. uh, over 2007 into 2008. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I had a joy uh, doing it, but this was a different level. Um, you know, you compare research opportunities in 2007 and 2008 to what we have in 2021. Yeah. It's just a different level altogether. Mm-hmm. And so I was able um, across, you know, before you even get into the fact there've been a number of new Jewish players, this happened to be a very good season for Jewish baseball, mm-hmm. right through the World Series. Oh, yeah. Four <laughs> Jewish players in the World Series. We were six short of a million. I, I, I was really surprised when I saw um, the news of, um, was it Freed? Freed versus um, Bregman, Bregman was the first was the first Jewish pitcher versus hitter matchup in World Series history. And it got better. And, we had a freed a yeah. pitch that Bregman flew out to Jock Peterson. Wow, was, I didn't even think about that. That's so great. Intense. That's perfect. I, I'm just really, I am really. I mean, I know there weren't too many, but I'm pretty. I'm surprised that was the first time that it happened. I was too, but you know, you go back and you look, and uh, yeah, in terms yeah. of how many at any one time, and of course, there was a long period of time where only two teams made the postseason. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that isolated things further. But uh, ultimately, it was it was exciting to see. It was, you know, and, and Max Fried winning game six was the first uh, Jewish pitcher to win a game since Ken Holtzman in the 74 mm-hmm. World Series. First Jewish pitcher to win a World Series game, mm-hmm. I should say, since Ken Holtzman in the 74 World Series. But, yeah, I, I mean, it was telling those newer stories. But I was able to, you know, I was able to trace by going back to people's individual lives over at newspapers.com i was able to see how they lived before how they lived after you know guys at 17 years old when they got their big break when they got the call and guys you know decades after they had retired the way they were living their lives mm-hmm. and so it was it was such a thrill and i i mean i expanded it a ton uh, but i was also able to just tell full stories again and again and so mm-hmm. uh, that was delightful we come out in may of 2022 you can pre-order now uh but oh man there there are just so many fun tidbits i was able to get to yeah that sounds like a lot of fun and and poor research on my my part i didn't realize that there was a previous edition that you'd uh you'd already put out so yeah i think i know i don't think my parents are listening to this i know what i'm getting my dad for uh (laughs) for his (laughs) birthday next year um so (laughs) moving on with more baseball stuff um what is the coolest moment you've ever seen live at a baseball game? Oh, God. What a great question. Mm-hmm. I, it might not even be uh, something I covered, although I've had the privilege. I covered the best uh, per individual performance of any human in World Series history. So I covered David Ortiz during the 2013 mm-hmm. World Series, uh, working at uh, you know Sports on Earth, may it rest in peace. And that was delightful. I got to cover a World Series game at City Field. I mean, be able to cover the mm, World Series team I grew up rooting for mm-hmm. is an incredible thing. But I'm going to take you back to October 6th, 1991. I'm 11 years old. I had tickets to the final game of the Phillies versus Mets, Philadelphia Phillies Fan Appreciation Day. 
Uh, it was not a full house. Philadelphia by October was well into Eagle season. Mm-hmm. And at the stadium, you could hear the the radios broadcasting Merrill Reese and the Eagles. Uh, but David Cohn took the mound for the Mets, and he struck out 19 Phillies. And my dad and I got to watch it. Very few have ever done more. You know, Terry Wood had 20. Mm-hmm. Roger Clemens had 20. Uh, but outside of that, David Cohn, you know, tied what was then a National League record held by Tom Seaver. And I got to watch him strike out 19 Philadelphia Phillies uh, on the final day of the 91 season. So that may well be uh, the most incredible thing I saw. Mm-hmm. I would tie it with seeing Johan Santana in the penultimate day of the 2008 season, uh, final weekend at Shea Stadium. Oh, man. 125 pitches, three hit shutout, kept the Mets in the playoff race for one more day and did it with a torn meniscus in his knee that required surgery. So those two might be there. I don't I'm Ronald Acuna Jr. hit a ball 463 feet as a rookie. I was covering, I was doing a feature story there. So I mm-hmm. used to come for the game. I remember coming home and telling my wife, I was like, this guy's going to kill the Mets for the next 15 mm-hmm. years. Be ready for it. Yeah. And so he has. And so he has. And so he looks like he will. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I definitely get that feeling that you're talking about. I feel like there's a kind of a different level between like really cool things that you see. And then there's moments where you walk out of the stadium and you're like, I'm never going to see that again. I know like oh, yeah. I, I witnessed, I, I was fortunate enough to, to be present at uh, Mark Burley's perfect game in 2009. And which has always been kind of a funny thing when I've been asked that question or had similar conversations, like what's the coolest thing you ever seen? Listen, I'm never going to top that. That's, <laughs> and that's, that's easily the coolest thing I've ever seen and I will cherish it forever. And that's just like, you it's on a little bit of a different level. I can imagine that the 19, 19 strikeouts felt a similar way. Well, you never know if you're going to top it. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing about baseball is that, you know, when you're going to see things that you haven't seen before. Look, that's I also very veteran. true. I was at Veterans Stadium. I've never been live for a no hit, but I was at Veterans Stadium and I saw Don Carmen, who is not what anyone would call uh, a great pitcher historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Don Carmen threw a one hitter and the only hit he gave up was an infield hit by Mookie Wilson. And if you looked at the replay, uh, Mookie Wilson was out (laughs) back then. It would have been a no hitter. And uh, I would have been present for one of those. Every time you go to the ballpark, there's Mm -hmm. a real opportunity to see something that you haven't seen before, which is part of why, I mean, you go back to like, what do I love about baseball? Baseball is not standardized. The thing that I hate Mm -hmm. most are the humans. And one of them, unfortunately, is commissioner of baseball right now, who think the key to baseball is standardizing it. Let's eliminate the um, National League's lack of a designated hitter. Let's find ways to keep the minor leagues to 120 teams. Uh, You know, let's Mm -hmm. make ballparks conform to you know there are people who complain about that oh the ballparks are all different that's what makes it great that's what's so cool about it amazing about it why on earth we should i love cal's hill i miss cal's hill right it's yeah yeah man. you you got one of the great catches in baseball history because of cal's hill and your carlos Mm -hmm. beltran in the the extra innings of a game between the mets and astros ran up the hill and made a catch 
And and it's you know this kind of connects to the point with like the debate about robot umpires and instant right. replay and all these things. As I look at, I was looking at Alex Bregman recently actually in uh, his power numbers, and it's incredible how much he's been helped out by the left field dimensions in Houston. He outperformed mm-hmm. his he's outperformed his expected home runs according to stack by like 15 or 16 yes uh over the last few years and you look at him and it's all because he hits these high fly balls that just drop in the crawford boxes which we saw quite a bit of mm-hmm. this past postseason between that and it's similar with close calls with umpires and instant replay when you have guys getting called out because they had you know their cleat come off the bag for a fraction of a second sliding mm-hmm. into second base and people ask well do you want to get it right and i'm kind of like or do you want every I kind of like the human element. I like that you have those oddities where Alex Bregman probably does not come in third in MVP voting if he's playing in San Francisco in 2018. Maybe that sucks. Maybe you can hate that. I think it's kind of cool. You know, you get get both sides of it. I've got two. So those are two different things I want to address in turn, okay? Mm -hmm. So remind me. Remind me about the umpire part. Okay. (laughs) Because the Bregman thing... So I talked to um, there's there's a woman named Eve Rosenbaum who mm-hmm. uh, works in the Baltimore Orioles minor league development system. And she was a mm-hmm. she was fantastic. She was a great source for a lot of different insights uh, when it comes to the baseball Talmud and as part of the new edition. And she pointed out the fact that all right, we could say you know, geez, uh, it's the effect of Houston, but we mm-hmm. gotta we gotta point to the fact that Alex Bregman understood he's playing for Houston. Mm-hmm tailored his swing mm-hmm. he has altered his approach so i'm not prepared to say at all mm. well gee you put him in a different ballpark and alex bregman who is i mean almost like comically hard work mm-hmm. if you go back and do his history and it's like he was the 10 year old who did two a day practices and then would go to the batting cages like <laughs> that was him that's how mm-hmm. he ended up in the major leagues it's no mm-hmm. mystery Alex Bregman would have figured out how to hit anywhere, is mm-hmm. my personal opinion. You know, that uh, to give you an, a historical uh, comparison, people talked about, oh, Mel Ott, who hit something like the Polo Grounds, right? Of his 511 home runs at the Polo Grounds, right? And the short fence. And, you know, well, Mel Ott, if you'd put him somewhere else, well, Mel Ott was a damn good hitter and was a damn good hitter on the road, too. And we have no idea whether if you put Mel Ott in Yankee Stadium, if he would have had a different approach, or if you put Mel Ott in Sportsman's Park, if he would have had a different approach. There's chicken and egg here that you, you I think we cannot just allow to overwhelm mm-hmm. the way we view about uh, the way we view Alex Bregman mm-hmm. specifically. Um, so, so there's that. But, but to the umpire point, mm-hmm. the drama of baseball. And the fact that you know if it's a close play, you can't cheer yet because you got to wait three minutes or five minutes for a review. My honest belief about it is if there's something egregious and you can see it in 30 seconds, there's value to that, to get mm-hmm. it right. You're never going to get it 100% right. But what you are going to do is suck a lot of the life out of what mm-hmm. is today entertainment. Look. 30 seconds. If there's something easily overturned in 30 seconds, great. Let's take advantage of replay. It's beyond 30 seconds. Let's move on with the game. And there's a human mm-hmm. element to it. Yeah. And to your point about Bregman, you're absolutely right. That's that's a great point. And I think that's actually – I work with the analytics and 
the the new new age stuff a lot. That's what most of my writing is based of. But I mm-hmm. also I like to think I have a very healthy skepticism of them, uh, which you know is part of my my liberal arts background. I guess is just be skeptical of empiricism and all these other things. But um, well, you know, do you know Jay Jaffe's line? Jay Jaffe described and this was always felt perfect to me. Mm-hmm. Jay Jaffe described himself as part of the liberal arts wing of the sabermetrics community. <laughs> that is where I consider myself to mm-hmm. be. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially because there are very few people who are actually dogmatic on this in any real way. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote the Cardinals book. It was the same thing. It was this mm-hmm. nonsense about, you know, the stat guys versus the scout guys. And yeah, no, right. actually, you did have a really interesting scouting conversation with the sabermetric guys the quote-unquote sabermetric guy mm-hmm. and the scouting guys wanted to know the numbers it's, it's information you know everyone who mm-hmm. you know, pretends that that's even new in baseball like the scout <laughs> stat guy branch ricky invented the goddamn farm system and branch <laughs> ricky is the guy who employed the first uh sabermetric modern uh person way back in 1911 with the St. Louis Browns. He's the one who hired Alan Roth as a full-time statistician with the Brooklyn Dodgers. None of this is new. It's Mm -hmm. all what's been under the sun for the longest time. It is so, uh, so, so much of this, this stuff is just, is putting a name on things that we've always known. Yeah. Uh, which is which is why I find a lot of these like heated debates that you see in this these you know stupid internet spaces that just pretty funny. And what I was gonna say though is to the point about Bregman, it makes me think of the debate about RBIs, where look does a like we know what the limitations of RBIs are. I'm never going to go so far as to say that RBIs don't matter because you look at a guy like Jose Abreu who consistently puts up a hundred ribbies every single year. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that doesn't matter or that's just a, pro- a function of him being, uh, you know, a number four hitter with guys on base in front of him. You know, it's not he adjusts his approach when he has a guy on third and less than two X. He's going to hit it the other way. He's going to hit it in the air and get the guy in. These players, I think, it almost I think doesn't give. And this is not limited to just RBIs. This is kind of in general with these conversations that happen. I think it almost kind of by by taking it out of by assigning a randomness to it by taking it out of the hands mm-hmm. of the players uh, almost kinds of does does a disservice to their their skill in some ways. It hundred percent does. This is a human game of action and reaction. But I would mm-hmm. also say just regarding RBI, right? Mm-hmm. We've got sharper tools to measure this we don't have Mm -hmm. to sit there and be like it's all about production and we're just going to look at ops plus or we're just going to look at wrc plus you know whatever you want to do we've got things like rbi percentage Mm -hmm. you can go back and look well all right jose abreu adjusts his approach jose abreu is good at driving people in what how does he do relative to other similar Mm -hmm. power hitters a guy with similar uh, OPS plus numbers does Jose and I don't know this. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Now. I'm gonna go look after we're done. Yeah, this is how, but, this is how you approach it. This is how you answer these questions. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. you say you know, all right. There's a sharper tool, and is it's, RBI an easier uh, way to handle it? Is that a rough you know a rough estimate? Fine, so be mm-hmm. it. You know, we use those types of things all the time, and can we get a sharper look to be able to answer more specific questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, damn right we can, and you can be sure that all over baseball, that's what they're doing as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are numbers 
that are now ingrained because our generation is used to them that were not mm-hmm. a generation ago. 30 years from now, there are going to be numbers that are new and uh, unfamiliar to us. And by the way, there are numbers that are already like that for me. And I can either sit here mm-hmm. you know, and shake <laughs> my fist at a cloud or I could turn around and say, and, and I'll just use it as an example. Um, we were driving yesterday as a family and excuse me on Sunday and uh, exit velocity came up mm-hmm. and we're talking about that. And I'm talking to my wife about it and um, my older daughter, Mirabelle, you know, we're, and we love it because how cool is it to see that it comes off the bat? Mm-hmm. And, and my wife was like, but you know, does it matter? And I said, that's kind of an open question. And it's honestly mm-hmm. the question I need to know more about, you know, is it consistent exit velocity? Is it how consistently you're reaching a certain threshold? How predicted, how predictive is that moving forward? Um, I'm open to the idea that it is. I'm open to the idea that it's not. What I'm not going to do is roll my hands up in the air and say, oh, I'm just going to stick with RBI. Why would I do that? There's a chance to learn something new and interesting about the game I care about as much as anything outside of my family and friends. I'm going to want to know about it. It's it's like a big puzzle that we're always manufacturing new pieces for, and sometimes they fit mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't. But uh, it's all about getting a clear, a slightly clearer picture of what of what you're seeing in front of you, and that's like. I just think that's so cool that we're cons- consistently just adding more tools to be able to see, like, oh, like I'm seeing something here. And I'm wondering about it. I can go actually look it up. I can see whether I'm right or I'm wrong, whether, you know, I'm then, you know, if I'm wrong, there's something that I'm not seeing and you can dig even further. And there's, I don't know, there's just so, so much to do with these tools that I find these, I don't quite understand the debates necessarily that are about like, why do we have to kind of throw things out constantly? We can just, everything has, everything has some, you know, there's, Everything has some kind of purpose. You just have to know when to use things. Is our RBIs appropriate most of the time? No, probably not. Does that mean we can't look at them and be like, oh, that guy did good things this year? Yeah, you know, hey, there's a place for everything, in my opinion. There's also <laughs> the real enemy, which is, I think, and it extends beyond baseball. And the enemy is certainty. <laughs> and, that, and, you know, when I, I mentor a lot of young writers, and there are a lot of young writers I have who are absolutely sure of themselves being right about this and Mm -hmm. somebody else isn't just of a different opinion but are wrong and 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 you see it with older writers too i'm I'm not trying to make this about age but -hmm. the thing that i point out is you know there are so a recent thing i saw um, without getting into the specifics of the criticisms Mm -hmm. whitey herzog turned 90 and rick hummel who's a hall of fame writer interviewed him. Mm-hmm. Eddie Herzog is one of the sharpest people you're going to learn about baseball from. Mm-hmm. I've had the chance to interview him a couple of times. Um, there were people who absolutely were were convinced that what Whitey was saying was dead wrong um, on, on a host of different things. And maybe, there, maybe some of them were. And maybe some of them were right. But I'll be damned if I'm not going to listen to somebody who played baseball Dating back to the 1960s, who managed some of the most interesting teams of our time. Um, if he's talking about things that are wrong or right with baseball, ways that they can change, um, I just don't think we know. And and I, 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 a reason I'm certain we don't know is, <coughs> excuse me, is look at the minor league rule changes this year. Mm-hmm. They were put into place. 
people had theories about the way they might work, <coughs> excuse me, or not work. And those theories in many ways turned out to be totally unfounded. Mm-hmm. You know, there were ways in which I thought when they expanded the size of the bases, mm-hmm. that we were going to see a massive increase in stolen, in successful stolen bases. Almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Almost nothing. We just don't know. Again, in this endlessly complicated game with ra- action and reaction, how we get there. And I'm old enough to remember when Theo Epstein was in his 20s <laughs> fixing baseball. And Theo Epstein's job in Major League Baseball's front, um, you know, commissioner's office at, at this point is in many ways to fix the things he fixed back the other way. Yeah, it gets, man. I We got to have you back because I have, like, we could have a whole conversation about the, the philosophical side of entertainment versus winning at all costs and yes. and what that means. But uh, we've got we got about 20 minutes before I want to let you go. So we have a whole host usually of, of non-baseball questions to move on. Uh, I'm just going to throw a few of them at you before we get to our final segment. And the first thing I have to ask is uh, what we call the order of operations trifecta. And we're going to ask you about three things and very simple, the order in which you do them. So the first of the order of operations trifecta is uh, when you get dressed in the morning, socks versus pants, which one comes first? Uh, See, you're asking a father of two. So, (laughs) you know, I'll wake up, I'll have socks on already. I will, and especially this has happened over the last couple of years, I will switch from pajama pants to workout pants, knowing I'm going to work out um, after I drop my children off and get some work done. Mm-hmm. But socks versus pants, so I guess, you know, socks socks are the incumbent in, mm-hmm. that, in that scenario. I'm showering after I work out later. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. It's, it started out, we're on episode, this is going to be, I'm not sure when over the next month we're going to release this exactly. This is going to be like 26 or 27. Okay. And- it started out being people, it was mostly pants before socks people, and it's kind of switched the other way. And it's, it is, I, I enjoy seeing how, uh, how people's uh, fashion decisions and their order of operations is, are reflective of their lives sometimes. I, I just, it's important to note that the <clears throat> fashion does not come into play here. This is Fair. Purely, fashion is the wrong word. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is triage between getting dressed and getting breakfast on the table to get my children to the school. That's, <laughs> no, that's, that's the essence of it. Yeah. So number two uh, in the order of operations trifecta is uh, if you eat cereal and if you drink milk and you have the two together, as most mm-hmm. typically do, yes. um, which comes first? Oh, you put the cereal in and then you add the milk. You, you okay. can't. It floats. Yeah. It's, you know, no, it disturbs <laughs> the process. I, yeah. I, I hope that's been universal. Close, close to universal. We actually asked that question because of one specific person who goes milk before cereal. Uh, so in the works, he wrote, his name is uh, our guy, Jake Seeley. He wrote a full article in theathletic.com, uh, not only ranking his top 50 cereals, but explaining why he goes milk before cereal. Very, very controversial topic. I mean, I'm in for new information, but I'm, it's hard to believe. I, you know, <laughs> Uh, in a way that like, I don't want to dismiss RBI. I feel ready to dismiss that. But okay. <laughs> okay. fair enough. Very fair. Very fair. So uh, the last the last part of the order of operations trifecta is when you brush your teeth, toothpaste or water first? What's the order? Oh, water than toothpaste. I mean, that's a that's a basic. And then followed, followed by water on top of the toothpaste 
once no. you're done? No. Straight it's... in. Okay. Interesting. Does dry really? toothpaste on the wet like brush? Yeah, I, I we usually go. I think the most common answer, which is what I do, is like water, toothpaste, then water. Going dry wow. with the toothpaste seems. I don't know. Going in dry it's with like, the toothpaste seems like a lot. I don't, it's like it, kind of it's chalky. liquid. You've got water underneath. Yeah, you put too much toothpaste on. I mean, my my toothpaste lasts longer. You 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 don't overdo the toothpaste, and then you've got it ready to go. That's man. That's I think you're the second, the second or third person maybe who has gone toothpaste with with no water on top though. That's but under. That's but under. Under under is yeah. I think we you know. We only, we've, had, we've had one but person who just goes gross, straight, but... straight toothpaste. We have one person who goes no no water whatsoever. How but that's a pretty rare response. Mouth? It's hmm? how dry is your mouth? That, and not not that dry i just like to get you know the toothpaste when it is especially like you have a little bit that's touching the toothbrush but most of the time like i don't know it's not getting like the water that's on the toothbrush isn't isn't dampening the rest of it i just find maybe it's just the 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 consistency and texture of of toothpaste uh going straight in onto the teeth i don't know with no further maybe maybe you need a toothpaste uh change of brand i don't know i'm 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 usually a colgate guy but uh it's interesting i'm gonna have to bring this bring this by ben i'm sure he would have some interesting things to say here uh i I intend to listen to hear more yes yes well we're gonna do we're at some point i'm gonna have to do a full supercut of all our answers here just to to show show our guy jake um just just how out there he is with his cereal so uh Moving on to the next question, I'm curious if you could talk to any person in human history. It doesn't even have to be like a specific person. Can be like Mm -hmm. you know, you can say someone who lived in South America in 1300. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Who would you talk to? Any person? Anybody? How long do I have to Hmm. talk to them? Let's let's say you got an hour. You got an hour. Sit down. An hour. Sit down. That's very hard. That's very hard. I mean, there are obviously some historical questions I'd very much like answered. Um, you know, we've had usually with these questions, we find that sometimes the first answers that come to your head are, are often are often the best ones. We had someone say Tyler Glasnow earlier this year, which was a great answer. <laughs> you know, all these a lot a lot a lot of varieties. So whatever you know, no need to go super to think of something you know super. Super I mean, deep I, or profound, just, if you don't like, feel like it. You no, know, no, but I, Abraham would be fascinating. Mm. You know, mm. Abraham. Um, mm. You know, though I am Jewish, I, I mean, I think I, we could resolve a lot of things that have happened since if I could get an hour with Jesus. You know, mm. To, mm. to find out some things and maybe say, you know, hey, watch for this. You know, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> that guy Judas, um, like keep an eye out and side eye. Sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying, you know, we could have you know, converted. Um, so, yeah, dude, I don't know. That's a really good question. And then, you know, I boy, I'd love to have had a conversation with like Abraham Lincoln. I think it would be interesting as could be. I'd love, I mean, if it's just purely like it's not about getting answers, I just mm-hmm. an hour talking to Dorothy Parker would be a lot of fun. Mm. So, you know, that might be my answer. I might just, you know, I'm not going to solve human history questions. So I'll just <laughs> go, go see what Dorothy's up to, um, you know, uh, over at the Algonquin. I do more than an hour. We could go, you know, go, go see a George S. Kaufman play after we did. Those are all fantastic answers. And I'm just cracking up at the thought of like a, a 60 minute style interview with Abraham. And he's saying, and when God told you 
right to kill your son how did you feel i mean uh, what what well, how did that make you feel like I, i've got nothing against tyler glass now but i just don't know <laughs> it's i i love the full range of answers sometimes it's as simple as tyler glass now and you know finding out how he gets those beautiful beautiful locks taken care of and right. sometimes it's 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 abraham uh so <laughs> one more we get before we get to the final the final segment this is one of our favorites um and it is okay if the answer is no. Have you ever seen a ghost or a UFO or something that you just could not explain? Oh, well, so those are three very different things. See, right? that's what I thought, too. That's just the way we have it worded on the thing. But okay. like, you know, we're, we're interested in the unexplained, I guess, writ large. All right. So I have never seen a ghost, much to my chagrin. I would love to. That would be fantastic. I'm, I'm not willing to ignore the possibility that there is an afterlife, that there are people who are capable of coming back, but I, I've never seen any evidence of it. And so I don't currently believe it. Um, I, the, the UFO thing, I was obsessed when I was a kid and I loved reading about it. And it's very hard for me to believe in that case that there isn't life on other planets, you know, just given the sheer mathematics mm -hmm. of it. Um, but I haven't uh, ever seen that. Um, but you know, I cannot to this day explain to you how Justin Turner turned into the star he became after he left the Mets. <laughs> and so if you're asking me what about those unexplained, I, I think that's an easy answer. And, and I love Justin Turner. And the Mets were wrong to non-tender him because he was a very valuable utility infielder. But no, no one. I remember talking in the spring of 2013. I went out to do a story. Uh, it was spring 2014 uh, at a Camelback Ranch. And, you know, he was clearly, yeah. but he was on the border whether he was going to make the Dodgers or not. Mm -hmm. He ended up getting one of their last roster spots. And then he turned yeah, into the history. a star for the decade. And it's unexplained. I can't remember the name of his coach um, who's worked. I think he worked with, I, I could be mixing people up, but I think he worked with the same guy who overhauled Mookie Betts' swing the oh, year before right? he won his okay. MVP award. Yeah, because um, he was an early adopter of the, the fly ball revolution, so to speak, right. you know, buying into launch angle and not all that stuff. So that is that is that is a very funny answer. And However, and I like to go full circle on that, the mm -hmm. Mets replaced him with Eric Campbell, who had oh. tremendous exit velocity, but hit more ground balls than just about mm -hmm. anybody making that exit velocity essentially Moot. worthless. Yeah. Um, so we've got about 10 minutes left before I have to let you go and you got to get your kids. So we'll squeeze this last segment in here and it's called the full count. Okay. Uh, it's called the full count because three and two is five. We ask you for recommendations in five different categories. Oh, uh, I love it. And it's usually, like I said, usually the first thing that comes to mind doesn't have to be anything super profound. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so our first question is recommend us a book. And like I said, it doesn't have to be like you know, Moby Dick or something like that. We've had comic books in the past, you know, whatever, whatever strikes your fancy. I'm going to give you everything that Catherine Heine has ever written. Hmm, I'm not a familiar. Wonderful, a wonderful young novelist. Her newest is early morning riser and it's great, mm -hmm. but just standard deviation, single carefree mellow. One of them is a novel. Another is a book of stories. Catherine Heine is wonderful. Lily King is wonderful. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to go Catherine Heine. Okay, okay. we're. I'm going to I'm gonna have to look her up. I haven't, I'm not familiar. Um, so recommendation, I, and I link, 
usually when I put stuff in the notes, I link mm -hmm. to all of all the sources and stuff like that. So hopefully, hopefully people will check that out. And I, oh, I try okay. to make a point to check out everything as well. Oh, so. She's fantastic. She's so good. Good. Uh, so number two is a food recommendation, which could be like restaurant, ingredient, meal, dish, you know, whatever, anything food related. <laughs> if you are in the Philadelphia area, mm -hmm. and specifically on the South Jersey side, Hmm. South Jersey pretzel and water ice. Get the soft pretzels. I'm going to go visit my parents for Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. I'm going to do that. They are the best pretzels I've ever eaten. It's not close. Interesting. Interesting. That's another thing I don't think you have. You don't have pretzels in the Midwest in the way you have joints out east. It's similar to the bagel situation I've found. It is. Um, it is very. Where, I'm, I'm sorry for you. It is a, you know, we, we are all, all going to drown because of global warming. But before we do, <laughs> we're going to have better bagels and pretzels. And so, you know, mm -hmm. again, if you don't have those, is it living? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I will find myself in South Jersey sooner or later. I mean, I haven't spent much time in the Philadelphia area, but I know quite a few folks who are, who are out there. So I'm going to keep that one in mind for sure. Uh, so recommendation number three, which is technically two, but it can only be one if you want, is movies and or TV. Uh, the, my favorite movie of all time is The Third Man. Uh, Orson Welles um, is not the director, um, but he plays a wonderful role within it. Um, and I, I, I think it's the best film ever made. I also love To Be or Not To Be, the original Jörn Slubich version uh, with Jack Benny uh, and Carol Lombard shortly before she uh, tragically died in a plane crash. Um, so I'm, I, it depends if you want lighter. You go with to be or not to be if you want uh, a little more serious, but, but not too heavy. Um, the third man, uh, those are both fantastic. Oh, and Philadelphia story, if you want to go really light with uh, the only time that Cary Grant and uh, Jimmy Stewart were in the same movie together somehow. Ha, that's, oh man, my grandma, my grandma was huge fans of both of them. She could, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure she'd have a lot to say that. You've been, you've been watching any TV lately, anything you'd recommend? I mean, you know, the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is here, and I, I love every minute of it. Um, obviously, The Good Place is one of the best shows I've seen in recent years, and something I love. Um, Dead to Me is a show uh, that I really enjoyed several <clears throat> several seasons with Christina Applegate, um, and uh, that is terrific as well. Um, and listen, if you're in the mood for um, a uh, a miniseries. Um, a very English scandal with Hugh Grant was huh. particularly notably good. Word. Thank you for those. Those are all. I'm, uh, once once Succession is over this this year, I'm gonna have to find something else to watch. Watch once so. twice a week. So all all recommended. Mm -hmm. uh, so recommendation number four. We often talk about music on this pod a lot because Ben is a huge music guy. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't get to that much today. So can you give me a music recommendation? Bria Stoneberg, a wonderful jazz trumpet slash vocalist. Really, really good. Several albums. Jersey product. Can't go wrong with Bria Stoneberg. Veronica Swift, I had the chance to see in person. And she is one of the best young jazz vocalists uh, working today. She has a new album out called This Bitter Earth. It was nominated for a Grammy. It's terrific. And I'm just going to round out the trio with Emmett Cohen, 
pride of Montclair, New Jersey. He is uh, a jazz pianist. Um, he's be he's he's gotten big. Uh, a few years ago, I had a chance to see him at a local venue called Shanghai Jazz, which is, by the way, a combination music and food recommendation. It is a Chinese mm. restaurant that has great jazz music. Oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. John Picciarelli appears there, Calvin Russell. Um, if you don't know John Picciarelli, by the way, mm. learn John Picciarelli because he's the best jazz vocalist working today. And so I was there and... Um, Emmett, Emmett Cullen's drummer was 45 minutes late and we had the seat next to the piano. <laughs> Mirabelle, my older daughter and I were sitting there. She was about seven or eight at the time. And we just got to know Emmett Cullen, just this really nice young man um, who is a fantastic jazz pianist. Absolutely love him. That's awesome. That's definitely the first jazz recommendation we've gotten so far. And I, oh. I am on record as thinking that one of the most un, like jazz, live jazz and good food in combination like out to dinner at a nice jazz joint is one of the most under, at least for maybe for my generation for for folks uh who are not super generally familiar with jazz one of the most underrated things out there things you can do it's if it's you, always a great way to spend an evening and if i could pick the thing i've missed the most and we still aren't eating inside now that the girls are vaccinated we no, may lose oh we're almost there can you hear me Yep, yep, you are you are yep. back now. I lost you for a sec. Oh, good. And I'm sorry there's a glare, by the way. No, no, that's I, fine. I'm, I'm trying to block it with my head. <laughs> um, so for but so from from my perspective, mm -hmm. we haven't been eating inside. We may now mm -hmm. that the girls are vaccinated, but you know, we're like everyone else trying yeah, to figure that's, out. I haven't um, really been doing much of that's that what I've missed the most, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, is going to a, a jazz club where everyone's on top of each other, which sounds bad from a COVID perspective, but mm -hmm. from a living perspective, Kinda wonderful. Right there. And within, small tables. And and and, and, and the, the singer is right there in front of you, and the trio is there. And, mm -hmm. oh, and I, I got to get back to Birdland very soon. Oh, yeah, man. I want to I want to try that. Check this combination Chinese food jazz night. Sounds sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> Almost kind of fits with our final, the final recommendation of the full count is miscellaneous can be literally anything at all. Object, practice, oh. whatever. I'm going to give you a very um, old person's recommendation. Even though <laughs> I'm only 41. Um, flannel pants for huh. Mm. Over the last couple of years, I was never a pajama person. Um, I found soft flannel pants uh, to wear in the evening. It gives me a feeling, even on a day that is not so formal. And you know, you're able to see the video. I'm obviously not in formal attire. I don't have a top hat at the moment. Um, but when I change to relax, it gives me a sense of a break of finality with the day. Soft flannel pajama mm. i love that especially and um, i'm also fully work from home i'm in this room for freaking 75 percent of the day you know but so i'm i'm still you saw when i went up to get that mouse <laughs> i'm i'm currently in pajama pants i spend much of my day in pajama pants these days so that's i'm fully on board with that recommendation um wow it is 1 30 eastern on the dot we wrapped this up perfectly so you can go get your kids for school uh <laughs> howard it has it has been such a pleasure i was really looking forward to this conversation and i just had a lot of fun so thank you so so much for joining me 
Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad we made it happen, and hope we get to do it again. Absolutely. I mean, sooner or later, we have to start bringing guests around for a 2.0 because there's just so much. We, there's so much we love talking about, and we can never fit it all into an hour to two an hour and a half to two and a half hours. So we'll definitely keep going.